Let's pray before we walk through this passage. Our holy God, we come to you in need of your help as we've considered your word, particularly in the beginning chapter of Ruth. God, I pray that for those that are here, that the pivot hasn't turned from difficulty to hopefulness. I pray that Ruth too would help. And God, I pray that you would continue by your word to speak to us, reminding us of your good design, even in the midst of difficulty. And so for my suffering friends this morning, God, I pray that you would provide comfort. And I pray that you would provide those perhaps that aren't walking through a season of suffering, you would provide us with a picture of what godly comfort looks like. And so please meet with us. We don't want to go through religious motions. If we will commit ourselves to just the ordinary means of praying and singing and sitting under your word, you will bring great joy. And so I pray that joy would find each of us this morning. And for that to happen, I am aware that what is heard in this sermon must be far better than what's about to be preached. So, Spirit, please do your work. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series through this small book that's wedged between Judges and 1 Samuel. We're walking through what has been described as the most beautiful short story ever written. And uh, we may be surprised at just what this story is all about. Uh, In one way, we think about the book of Ruth and we think this is a love story. This is a beautiful story of redemption. And it is certainly those things. But in the book of Ruth, the human story, that's what commands our attention. But it's the hidden story that takes our breath away. And it's helpful for us to realize that there are two stories that are being communicated. The human story will grab our attention. The hidden story will take our breath away. And so let's think about the human story. This is what we saw last week in Ruth chapter 1. Ordinary people in an ordinary place a long time ago seeking to work through tragedy. Sounds like much of life. Ordinary people, ordinary place, seeking to work through tragedy. Elimelech set out with his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. They left the promised land, the land in which God said he would provide. They left that that land in order to find food during the famine. And where do they stop? Where do they reside? They end up in the land of Moab. Moab was historically known for its opposition to God and to the people of God. And instead of experiencing a better life in Moab, Naomi is confronted with the reality of death. She loses her husband, Elimelech. Her two sons then take Moabite Moabite wives, 
which was discouraged from the law of the Lord early on. They take Moabite wives. For 10 years, they do not bear any children. And 10 years from Elimelech's death, we find that Naomi's two sons die. That leaves Naomi in the most vulnerable of positions. I mean, she's reeling from this. Ruth chapter 1 tells us that she is convinced that God himself has turned against her. She begs her two daughter, daughters-in-law to go back home through this poignant moment of weeping. Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, she leaves, heads back to the land of Moab, but Ruth stays. Ruth and Naomi continue their trek back to Bethlehem. And what we find is Naomi is now an embittered woman. And she is blind to God's kindness and the kindnesses of God that have been evident in her life. And that's how we left chapter one. We said that was sort of the uh, first act of this short story. Ending of chapter one, the curtain closes, but things are about to change in chapter two as the curtain begins to rise on the second act of this book. That's the human story. That's the, that's the story that's evident. But there is another storyline. There's a hidden story. It's this unfolding story about the invisible hand of God using hard seasons of life for his glory and for his people's good. And so I just want you to know this morning, no matter how dark and how traumatic your season and your life is right now, Ruth is meant to serve to remind you that God is with you. God has not left you. Wherever your question marks are emerging, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in uh, the prospect of a job search, a different career, children, widowhood, midlife crisis, whatever form of suffering. And perhaps there are times where you just find that it's even hard to catch your breath in a regular rhythm. Difficulty seems to be crashing over you potentially even grief, crashing over you like unrelenting waves. And perhaps you're wondering what Naomi wondered all along. God, where are you at? Ruth is inviting us this morning to listen to God and to listen to God say to us through Ruth chapter two, daughter, son, I do my best work in times like these. The last verse of chapter one really sets the stage for act two in chapter two. This is what we read again in, act one, uh, in Ruth one, verse 22. So Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law who returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Most of chapter 1 unfolds in, uh, on, on this road from Moab to Bethlehem. Most of chapter 2 is going to unfold in a barley field. The author is masterful at recounting this story to us. Uh, look again 
Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The author, in seeking to make us aware of things in which those who were in the story were unaware of at this time, he wants to sort of let us in on what they can't see. And so we have a perspective of what's unfolding even before those who were walking through Ruth chapter 2. And he clues us into someone new in this account. And that someone new is Boaz. And Boaz was not just like any other man of his day. Uh, he was an extraordinary man. We'll learn much about him uh, as we go, not only this week, but also next week. But what we learn here in verse 1, we're told that he is a kinsman and that he was wealthy. He's a kinsman. Perhaps your translation says a relative, a kinsman redeemer. And essentially what that means, if he was a kinsman, he was a relative who was charged with marrying and caring for a widow of a brother of his who died childless. Was meant to ensure all throughout the Old Testament there is this, there's this focus on lineage and land. And this was, this was intended, God's provision, to ensure that his people never were without a lineage and never were without a land. And so this protection was that there would be kinsmen. A kinsman in the event that a, uh, a family member passed away and was without child. And so Boaz was a kinsman in the family of Elimelech. But the second thing we hear is that he was wealthy. If you remember about Ruth chapter 1, Ruth and Naomi are coming back at a time and all they have is need. Uh, they, are, they are desperate for provision. And it just so happens that this one in the family of Elimelech has the provision to take care of their needs. And so the author wants all the eyes on Boaz. And so with the fresh smell of barley and with the sight of happy harvesters and the reality of an amazing grace at hand, we're all invited to jump into chapter 2. Verse 2 sets this act into motion. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. Ruth the Moabitess asked for permission to go and glean in the fields. And she is readily aware that she is in need of something that is, that's massive in her day. She is in need of the favor of one in whom, whose field she would glean in. She's in need of favor. Naomi and Ruth are in need of food. It's the beginning of barley season. And so there is hopefulness. There has not been much hope in this story. And at the turn of chapter 2, we see there is hopefulness for Ruth and Naomi. And you say, well, what in the world does it mean to glean in a field? The Mosaic Law made a provision for those who were poor, those who were sojourning, those who had need. And that provision was through gleaning. 
You can read about gleaning in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. If you want to read the second giving of that, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. And just to give you an idea, this is what it means. When you reap your harvest, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 19 and 20, when you reap your harvest in your field and you've forgotten a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive tree, you shall not go over, over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And so gleaning was this process that as the harvesters were going through and they were taking the sheaves and they would then beat out all of the grain, if they had dropped some of the sheaves, they weren't to go back. You will find in Leviticus 19 that there, uh, the parameters will even be leave the edges of your field unharvested. And so the idea is that God was providing for those that were vulnerable, those that were in need, and he was providing in a most gracious of ways through the gleaning in the field of someone else. The poor, the sojourner could come and pick up the scraps and they could harvest the edges of the field. And Ruth decides to take advantage of this provision. But Ruth is rightly very cautious. Do you remember the tagline that we said summarized the context of the book of Ruth? It was the last verse in the book of Judges. And everyone was doing right in their own eyes. She was very cautious because she knew the Mosaic law was not being enforced. She could go into a field and be taken advantage of. She could have been mistreated as a woman. She could have been mistreated as a widow. She could have been mistreated as a widowed woman who was also a foreigner. She was dependent upon the favor of the owner of a field, and she simply could not have imagined the favor that she was about to receive on that day. And Ruth is a reminder of us at the outset of Ruth chapter 2 that when we say we are going to trust in God, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to wait and do nothing until he moves. What we see Ruth doing is being faithful and obedient one step at a time. Faith is often exercised in taking the next step forward in obedience and faith. Trusting that God will provide. Verse 3 keeps the story going. And so she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And so Ruth finds herself gleaning in a certain field. And the text says that she happened to come to the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz. We are meant to pick up on the irony and the humor in that phrase. And she happened to come to this portion of the field. I appreciate what commentator Daniel Block says. He says that this phrase's sole purpose is to undermine purely rational explanations for what has just happened. 
In reality, he says, this is the author of Ruth screaming at us. See the hidden hand of God that's at work here. She just happened to come. And that work of God's hidden hand, it continues in verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Owners of fields don't spend time in their fields. But it just so happens that Boaz comes back at just the right time when Ruth is gleaning in the field. And he said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Not only does Ruth just so happen to be in his field, Boaz just so happens to come back from Bethlehem. Uh, the author is marveling at God's perfect timing. And he's inviting you and I to do the same. Uh, we're given a snapshot. We learn more about Boaz in verse 4. We're given a snapshot to just the kind of employer, uh, the kind of boss that he was. And it, it emerges through his interactions with his field harvesters, just the kind of man that he is. I mean, he's thoroughly God-centered. He's thoroughly God-centered. Even in his interactions He's a man who loves and trusts God. He cares about his employees. You would want to work for Boaz. And it's obvious that those working for Boaz love working for Boaz. This man is God-centered. It affects everything that he does, including his conversations in the fields with his harvesters. And so again, what Ruth and Naomi can't see, you and I can see. And if we've been following along, there begins to be this sensation that we're beginning to feel that has been void thus far in the book of Ruth. And it's this sensation of hope. There's hope. Just for the record, that is something in my microphone and not my jaw <laughs> that is clicking. Verses 5 through 7. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Again, Ruth just happened to be in the field. Boaz just happened to come back. Boaz just happened to take notice of someone in his field that he didn't know. And we're being invited to perceive what they cannot perceive, that God's hidden hand is at work. It is not coincidence. It is divine providence. God's act of providing for and sustaining and governing all things it's what, it's what we read in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The mind, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes, the Lord directs his steps. Ruth and uh, Boaz and Ruth are unaware of how all of this is unfolding. But we are. And part 
Part of the intent for the reader is for us to begin to question, perhaps there are things going on in my life today that, that I can't see. Perhaps in the middle of the trial, there are things that he is orchestrating that I cannot see. I mean, from our perspective, we just want to yell into the text to just tell Naomi, Naomi, there is hope. There is hope, not merely because we can see it. There's hope because we know the God who stands behind it. Boaz is informed about Ruth. And his foreman there directs his attention towards two things. The humility of Ruth. The provision didn't require that you came and asked for permission but we see something about the humble, meek character of Ruth. I mean, she is throwing herself completely into the hands of the owner of the field. Can I please, can I please glean from here? But we're directed not just to her hum humility, but to her hard work. Uh, the text tells us she's been there all day. The hard work plus the blazing sun in this field full of potential, potential landmines. The author is wanting to communicate that Ruth is worthy of admiration. Look at verses 8 through 13. Then Boaz said to Ruth, and so now the conversation switches, and now we begin to have an interaction between Boaz and Ruth. Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in any other field, in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that, did not, that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Boaz approaches her to provide care and protection. He's breaking all kinds of social norms to provide care for this Moabite woman. He even goes to the lengths of calling her his daughter. Again, Daniel Block in his commentary, he says, contemporary readers will be struck at just how modern Boaz's response to Ruth is. He even, I think, jokingly, maybe not jokingly, says this is the first anti-harassment policy recorded in the Bible. He is seeking to care for her. He stands to gain nothing from her. We're seeing the character 
of Boaz put on display, uh, display the passionate character of Boaz. He also provides her with water. And Ruth is absolutely blindsided by his kindness. She falls on her knees in verse 10 and just begins to cry out, Why have I found favor? She's arrived. She is not expecting special treatment. In fact, she probably is aware that she's going to get the opposite. She will probably be taken advantage of. She's a foreigner. She's a single, widowed woman. She's gleaning in a field that is not hers. And yet Boaz doesn't relate to her as a foreigner. He takes notice of her. Ruth is acutely aware of her lowly status. And she is moved by the kindness of Boaz. Boaz's response to her, she says, Why have I found favor in your sight? Verse 10. Boaz's response in verses 11 and 12, it makes no mention of his wealth, no mention of his generosity. He keeps all of the focus on her character. It's become apparent to all how you have cared for your mother-in-law. The news has spread in this small town. And then he offers a prayer in verse 12. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Verse 13, Ruth responds, most likely, these would have been the first possibly even the most kind words she has heard since making the decision to come back to Bethlehem with Naomi. I mean, we saw in chapter 1, Naomi missed it. Naomi didn't even recognize God's grace in the fact that Ruth went with her. And so perhaps for the first time, she hears words of compassion and words of kindness. She feels welcomed. Boaz doesn't reveal that he's a relative to Naomi's widowed husband, uh, dead husband. And there's something here that if we're not careful, if all we do is look at the human story and we miss the hidden story, perhaps this is where the train begins to run off the tracks and we begin to sort of think, okay, this is the moment where the, the love chemistry begins to to stir up, and we see this raging love story between Ruth and Boaz. And as much as sometimes we want that to be the reason why he did this to her and extended this kind of compassionate kindness to us, I don't think the text allows us to. In fact, one commentator says, this text offers no hint of any romantic attraction between Boaz and Ruth. And given the, the ethnic and social barriers between them, this thought would have never crossed Ruth's mind. She simply would not have known that he was a kinsman redeemer of her deceased father-in-law. This is not her beginning to jockey for position because she's, she knows she's about to come into the land of blessing. In the imagery of verse 12 in his prayer, it's stunning. 
May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full. Why? Because you have come to seek shelter, refuge, under God's wings. That that imagery is common throughout the Old Testament. Spreading out God's strong wings to protect his defenseless ones. Psalm 57 verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young and spreads his wings and caught them. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. We begin to see just the beauty of what Boaz prays. But we're beginning to see, wait a minute. Boaz seems to be doing this. He seems to be providing a layer of care and shelter under his wings. And then we begin to understand what's happening in that hidden story. That hidden story is unfolding. And we're beginning to see that the love of Boaz is meant to be a tangible, visible picture of how God loves his own. And I warned you at the beginning, if you see this, it will take your breath away. And Boaz isn't finished showing kindness. In verses 14 through 16, he invites her to feast with him. He invites her to his table. Eating was a sign of, a sign of friendship and acceptance. And that's what we see in verse 14. At meantime, uh, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. He served her. I mean, the kindness and the compassion is absurd. It doesn't add up. At every point, you're supposed to go, why are you doing this, Boaz? Why are you doing this? And she ate. And maybe for the first time since they, they left because of the famine, she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law, oh, verse 14, she was satisfied and had some left. And when she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do you you remember the provision for the foreigners? We're going to let her go where she has no business going. And not only only make sure you leave some in the sheaves, but purposefully pull out some of the grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Make it as easy as possible for her to find provision. And Ruth is clueless as to why this is happening. And the author has made us aware in verse 1. We know who he is. We know what he has. And he's just made it clear all throughout chapter 2. This is a man 
who is devoted to his God, and it is evident in how he loves others. And then the final scene of Act 2 in verses 17 through 23. The conversation picks up now that Ruth is going to go back and have with Naomi. Listen. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of this man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord. And what comes after this is not pointing to Boaz, it's pointing to the Lord. May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Naomi, the Moabitess, said, furthermore, he said to me, you shall stay, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. She returns with a massive amount of food. An ephah of barley would have weighed about, uh, about 30 pounds, even up to maybe 50 pounds. It was a massive haul. This was not normal for a day's labor. This would have, this would have been enough food to last them for, for weeks. And so she asked, where in the world did you get this? Who allowed you to take this home from their field? And she reveals that it's Boaz. And again, we already know this, but the author creates suspense by withholding his name until the end, even of Ruth's answer. And what we see in verse 20, in that moment, we see a noticeable change. Go back and, and look, at, look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. Listen to Naomi. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, literally one chapter later, Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to her. May he be blessed of the Lord, the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. In that moment, Naomi's hard embittered heart is beginning to soften and it's because she begins to perceive that the hand that was behind the hardness in chapter one is the same hand that's provide that's behind the provision in chapter two she's beginning to see that behind the generosity of even boaz is this hesed it's this word has said. It's this the steadfast 
love, never changing, covenant loyal love and faithfulness that God has towards his people. It doesn't ebb and flow. He has been steadfast in his love. Naomi realized she has been misreading God. The Lord never stopped showing kindness to her. She was misreading. She was interpreting hardship as God's negligence of her. God's hand wasn't against her. And she begins to perceive God's covenant faithfulness even in the difficulty. Ruth is meant to encourage us here too. Boaz isn't just a relative, but he's one of the redeemers. He's one of the viable options of redeeming them. Naomi recognizes the implications of what has happened on this day. And she begins to feel that same, that same sensation rising up within her heart, that strangely warm sensation of hope that she has not felt, felt thus far. Because she's a good mother-in-law, she makes sure to give Ruth advice in verses 22 and 23. Don't you go anywhere else. It's like understatement, oh, the year. And we're told that she stayed up until the close of barley season, but also she stayed even to the end of wheat season. It probably would have been about 8 to 12 weeks. She stays gleaning day in and day out to provide for her and her mother-in-law. And the chapter sort of concludes, and we're left in this suspense as to what in the world is going to happen next. And I would invite you to come back next week <laughs> and find out what will happen next. But as I step away from Ruth chapter 2, the story, the story tells itself. But I just want to encourage us with three considerations as we close-ish. <laughs> Number one, consider the examples of Boaz and Ruth. Consider what you just saw unfold in the characters, in the compassion in the kindness of Boaz and Ruth. Both of them are put before us as to what it looks like when your life is gripped by God's said kind of love. If you are convinced that he is faithful to you no matter what, your response will look something. This isn't like go and be Ruth and go and be Boaz. This is something that, this is an example that's set before us to say, this is what it, it looks like. When you are convinced that God loves you, you don't take that and you don't live a life that just centers on you. No, you go and you begin to love others because you have been loved. There's nothing else in this world that you need. And so now you're free to give your life in service to others. You're free to be the hands and the feet of this loving, said kind of God. Ruth loves Naomi. She submits to God in ways that are pure. In fact, many of the early commentators would put the book of Ruth after the book of Proverbs 
And they would do that because they would say, well, clearly this book goes here because Ruth is a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. Boaz is God-centered. He is generous. He is gracious. He is others-focused. He is generous and compassionate to the marginalized, to the vulnerable, to the outsider. Though an imperfect one, he is an embodiment of God's provision and protection for his people. And so I just want to ask you, where do you need to give attention in response to God's hesed kind of love and faithfulness. What about Ruth for the ladies in the house and what about Boaz for the men? What about their character and their example? Would it be good for you to consider and give attention to? Second consideration, consider God's love for the outsider. Consider God's love for the outsider. Five times in the book of Ruth and three times in this chapter, Ruth is referred to as a Moabite or the Moabitess. Here's the thing, the author does not want us to forget who we are dealing with. This is not Moabites, we're not friendly next door neighbors. But Ruth has abandoned all of her gods. She has, she has abandoned her family, and God is using her to unfold this story. And one of the main themes throughout the book of Ruth is that God indeed loves outsiders. He loves outsiders. He can work in anyone, and He can work anywhere where we least expect it, so long as He is working with surrender. And that's what Ruth has done. She has surrendered all of her rights. She has surrendered going back to worship false gods. And she has said, I am giving you my everything. The Bible tells us the reason maybe this chord strikes with us so deeply is because, because we're all outsiders. I mean, who among us can measure up to belong to a holy, pure, perfect God? There's none among us. And the Bible tells us that not only are we all outsiders, the reason that we're outsiders is because we're rebels against the God who created us, and we sin against the God to whom we are accountable. That's why when we encounter people like Ruth and Boaz, we go, ha, ah, I, want, I want to be more like that. It's because we are not more like that. And there's good news for outsiders and sinners and rebels. And it's not just that at one point God was gracious to this family. The good news for outsiders and sinners and rebels is that God has been gracious to all outsiders, sinners, and rebels who were willing to bow their knee in surrender. And he's been gracious to us in and through Jesus the Christ. The hidden story of the book of Ruth is pointing us to him. We'll see that over the next two weeks. And all the pieces will come together, and what will be clear is that the hope isn't Boaz. 
The hope isn't even David. The hope is Jesus the Christ. And that wasn't hope just for them. It's hope for you and I today. It's hope for us. It's hope because as sinners and rebels and outsiders, we can never get in with God. Our sin keeps us from that. And the majority of non-Christians that I know, you know what they think? I used to think, they think that God wants nothing to do with them. And sadly, there are even some Christians who think that. That God wants nothing to do with them. And Ruth, the book of Ruth, is a full-out correction of that lie. And if you're not a Christian in here this morning, I just want you to know, you feel that you were far away from God. You feel that there are things in your past that God could never forgive. You feel that there are things, the consequences of your sin, that just seem to be this cycle of brokenness. I can never get out. I will never measure up. He will never be pleased with me. I just want you to know there is a way that you can measure up. There is a way that you can be pleased, pleasable before a holy God. That has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with the performance of Christ who came and lived sinless life. You needed that type of perfection credited to your account. And he died a substitutionary death. He absorbed the wrath of God in the place of sinners so that their sin penalty could be paid. And then a bodily resurrection on the third day just to convince that if you think it's ludicrous to put your faith in one who promises these types of lavish loves and faithfulness, then you better put all of your chips in on the God who raises from the dead, who does what only God can do. You see, in Jesus Christ, he seeks the outcast. He shelters the weak under his wings. He serves the hungry at his table. And he showers the needy with his grace. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would just plead with you. You will not find another who loves you like this. And you can lay hold of that love if you will do what Ruth did, if you will surrender. Surrender. Believe that what the Bible says about him is true and be willing to give up your sin. Turn from it. Walk away knowing that what you lay hold of in Christ is far better than what your sin is promising you now. It would be the joy of any member of this church, any person in this room to talk to you about what that means. And for my Christian friends, my Christian brothers and sisters, members of Covenant Life Church, don't forget that you too were once an outsider. You too were once an outsider. The longer you walk with Christ, the more lingering the sin of pride begins to make us think that just perhaps we deserved God's grace. That compromised disposition in your heart causes us to be apathetic towards God. And so just let Ruth serve to remind you, Christian, that your acceptance before God, it's completely undeserved. Completely. And that should move us. It should move us towards God 
it should also move us towards other outsiders. And so I would just invite you to begin to pray that the fruitfulness from what we're about to walk through through our community groups for the next six weeks, pray that the fruitfulness of that would look like we are being pushed towards outsiders. Those that do not yet know and are not yet in the love of Christ. That's part of why you were redeemed. Do you have a heart for outsiders? Third consideration. Consider the hidden hand of God at work. The author wants us to see the hidden hand of God at work in the life of Ruth and Naomi. He's screaming at us at times. Look at the hidden hand of God at work here. Here's the thing. There are no jaw-dropping miracles in the book of Ruth. God never speaks kind of in the book to the people. He speaks through the book to his people. There are no miracles in this book. The only direct action is referenced two times in this book, once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 4. And in between, everything that's unfolding is just divine providence at work in quiet, mundane, regular rhythms of life. You see, center stage in this book are not the human characters. Center stage in this book is God himself. And he's not taking center stage through all of these extraordinary means. He's doing it just in the daily rhythms of life. The author is encouraging us to look back over your life's events and to just trace God's mysterious hand, which is at work. Stuff happens in your life all the time. And without Ruth's theology, you will not stop to trace the ways in which God is at work in the mundane and the regular. I wonder, are you perceptive of the it-just-so-happen moments that dominate your life? Like, Do you see that he's at work? We learned that God's providence is often subtle. It's often quiet. It's not always spectacular. And so how aware are you of God's kindness and his providence in your life? How perceptive are you to God's hidden hand, even in the trials? Are you a careful student of God's hidden hand that's at work? Study Ruth and watch how something that just happens is connected to the kindness of God. I mean, I did this even this week as an exercise. It just so happened that my mom landed a job with one other outspoken Christian. And it just so happened that when we moved to Jackson, Tennessee, that was three minutes from the church that she went to. And it just so happened that there was a youth minister from Middle Tennessee who would go to Union University who would interview with the church, Calvary Baptist Church, in which he had never even been to. And he would be offered a job and he would come in. And it just so happened that I was being considered as an intern my senior year of high school. And it just so happened that this guy looked at me and he shared the gospel with me. It just so happened that I was planning on going college elsewhere, but I went to Union, where I studied Christian studies. It just so happened that there was one day on the volleyball court, or in it, however it was, that Jackie Williams walked in, and it was like, huh, how, how did I get here on this day, and how did she get here on this day? 
And it just so happened that the second guy that I called to preach my ordination in Lewisport, Kentucky, was the guy who boldly said, Justin, more is required of you theologically to shepherd God's people. Go to seminary. And it just so happened that the first seminary and the first church that we visited to, we ended up staying at. And it just so happened that the moment that I was there, there began to be a desire for this church to have a pastoral internship program and a church planning residency program. And it just so happened that one of the guys I shared the gospel with at a Walmart distribution center said, I don't know anything about God, but the place that you're describing sounds a lot like Tampa. It just so happened. God is working out our stories. And he's embedding them into his. And so trust him. Trust him with your story through the ups and the downs. It's easy to compare and wish we had a different story, but they're all unique. And that's purposeful because he's creative. And he chose your story for you. And he's a good father who loves you and knows what you need. Puritan John Flavel said, he wanted those who he loved and served to perceive the hidden hand of God. He wrote the book, The Mystery of God's Providence. He knew the value of perceiving God's providence. And this is what he wrote in that book. He who perceives God's providence will never be long without a providence to observe. He who perceives God's providence will never be long without a providence to observe. Flavel was convinced that if you and I would take time to just trace his providence, we would be stunned at what we see. He'll go on to say that the chief concern for even writing that book was this. Followers of Jesus do not fully realize just how blessed they are. I wonder where God has provided an ephah, a barley in your life. And perhaps you've missed it because it's ordinary. I mean, this was one ordinary day. There were countless other ordinary days. And I think you and I will look back and we will be astonished at how God uses the millions of lesser stories to work all things for our good and his glory. He works through the ordinary more than anything else. He must think that the ordinary is special because he has filled our lives with so much of it. And so church, I pray that we would see the hidden hand of God at work here. And that would cause us to respond in worship and trust. Let's pray. Our holy God, we ask that you would speak. Speak as you have in the singing and in the praying and in the preaching. We ask that you would speak even in this brief moment of silence. Show us what right living looks like in light of right understanding. God, make us more like Christ. And so speak to us, we pray.